0: I can't express how proud I am of you and how grateful I am to actually be able to serve as your pastor when I think about people created in the image of God that have been reduced to the desperation of homelessness through mental illness or addiction, loss of love or hope or health, being raised up into a christ focused, Christ-loving community where their lives are literally being transformed. What that sounds like to me, what that looks like to me, what that is to me, that is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's what we come to celebrate today. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, has defeated our enemies of sin and of death. He's risen from the grave He's overcome all the obstacles that get in the way, and he's caused us to live new lives. And that's what we celebrate on the sunrise service on Easter Sunday morning. And so I am so grateful just to be a part of all that God is doing. And I hope on this day you are filled with joy knowing that God's love for you manifests itself and giving you a new life, something that transforms you. Now, John, in his gospel, actually talked about this as he was writing down the events of what happened in the life of Jesus Christ, and here's what he said. John said, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, uh, John's written about the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and he's saying there's a reason why I'm telling you all this, because if you believe in Jesus, what He did, who He is, and the resurrection, then you may have life in His name. Now, in the Greek New Testament, there are two words that are used for life. One is bios, and we understand what bios is, right? Bios is biology. It's about our physical existence, our physical life, right? So bios has to do with our bodies. It has to do with things like eating, sleeping, breathing, the things that sustain life, and everybody has bios. But there's a second word that's used, and that's the Greek word zoe, Now, zoe life is different than bios because zoe life in the Gospel of John refers to spiritual life. Being alive to God, being able to connect with him and hear from him and experience his love and his grace, it's eternal life, and that zoe life is something that not everybody has, it's something that you receive when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And here John says that you may have life in his name. Now most of us spend our time in bias. We spend our time working so that we can have money, so that we can have things, houses and cars and phones and vacations, all taking care of our physical bias life. And, and let me just uh, give you some bad news, teens. You know that, that you're doing all those AP classes and working so hard so you can get into a college. That's what your parents are pushing you for so that you can get a career and get out on your own and take care of yourself financially so they don't have to take care of you anymore and then encourage you spending the rest of your life living by us, taking care of the body, taking care of life. But there's something greater than that. It's the resurrection life. It's the transformed life. It's spiritual life. i got to tell you, folks, I want that life. Don't you want that life? Now, my almost three-year-old granddaughter, always had to put a granddaughter in on Easter, right? Uh, Caroline, my almost three-year-old granddaughter, she and I play this little game. It always starts like this. I see something that she wants, and I say... I want that marshmallow. And she scowls at me and she says, I want that marshmallow. And then I say, I want that bunny. And she's like, no, I want that bunny. And then I say, I want that Elmo. And by now she's starting to catch on. She gets that little smirk on her face and she says, no, I want that Elmo. Folks, I want that life. Don't you want that life? Don't you desire to have the transformational life of God in you? Now for many of us, we struggle with that because there are obstacles that seem to get in the way, things that that, kind of cause us to get stuck and we don't embrace that life. And what's so important to understand is is that Jesus has cleared the obstacles out of the way through his resurrection so that you might have life. Now, last week, we looked at John's account of the resurrection of Jesus and what happened on the Resurrection Sunday. But John goes ahead in his gospel to talk about two of his friends that had obstacles in the way of receiving this life. And maybe you'll be able to relate to these folks. Maybe you have one of these obstacles. The first person that John talks about after the resurrection is his good friend Thomas, one of the disciples. And Thomas had an obstacle in his life. Can any of you guess what it is? Doubt. Doubt. You think it's doubt? Maybe because his, they, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? Actually, Thomas's issue is not doubt, it's unbelief. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus for Thomas is removing the obstacle of unbelief. Now, I want you to see this in the Gospel of John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at it. If you don't, just use the phone that you've been taking pictures with. And posting on social media, you know, all the selfies that you got going on right now, and just go to BibleGateway.com, Gospel of John, chapter 20, and here we begin in verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, or twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's not a statement of doubt. That's a statement of unbelief. Now, a couple things I want to point out in the passage. So what has transpired? Well, what's transpired is, is that the report came back from the women who went to the tomb that the tomb was empty. Peter and John ran to the tomb, found it was empty, found two angels that told him that Jesus is risen. The women went back to the garden where the tomb was. Jesus appeared to them, appeared to Mary Magdalene, identified himself, and then later on in that day, Luke's gospel records that he shows up on the road to to Emmaus, with two pilgrims traveling on the road, appears to them, who run back to Jerusalem, run into the upper room where the disciples are staying, kind of hiding out because they're afraid. Jesus, their Lord, has just been crucified. Could Could they be coming for us? Come back in, and they tell them, we've seen Jesus. The women are saying, we've seen Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there in the room. And he says to them, peace be still, it's me, I'm real. In fact, look, look at the nail scars on my hands, look at the place where the spear went into my side, give me some food so you can see I'm, like, I'm real. And they all believed. The problem was Thomas was not present. Now here's something interesting. In the midst of the pain and confusion of the crucifixion of the man that Thomas had been following for three years, who Thomas thought he would be the savior of the world, in the midst of all of that confusion, rather than being with the disciples, Thomas chooses to isolate. He's going to carry this grief alone which should be a major warning to all of us about the danger of isolating ourselves when we find ourselves in moments of fear or sadness or sorrow or confusion. The natural thing is to go into the cave to hide, and what we really need is people. And So Thomas is not where he should be. In addition to that, let me just make a shameless plug for church. It's actually dangerous to miss church. Because Jesus might show up some Sunday and speak, and you're not there? Like, that's why the New Testament calls us to gather every week together to encourage one another. And so many people just opt out of that. And throughout the pandemic, we saw the dangers of isolation. And so I would challenge you, in person, with people present, Thomas isn't there. The second thing that we notice in the passage is that his friends are telling him, We have seen Jesus. In fact, they're saying it over and over and over again. So if you're a person who was drugged here this morning by your crazy Christian friends or family that keep telling you, you have got to come into a relationship with Jesus, and you're like, what's wrong with these people? Why are they so excited? Because once you've seen the risen Jesus, experienced his life, you just want everybody to have it too. The third thing that we see here that's very important to understand is Thomas has evidence. He has eyewitness testimonies of his friends. The tomb is empty. And yet, what does he say? Unless I get a personal chance, to see it for myself, I will not believe. Now, that's different than doubt. Doubt actually can be a good thing on your journey to faith. I mean, we live in a world where everybody's spinning stuff, there's so much misinformation, having a little bit of educated doubt is actually probably wise. But doubt is always good if it leads you to find out not if it leads you into unbelief. And so in the face of all of the eyewitness testimonies, think if your 10 best friends were telling you they saw something happen and their story all lined up, what would you do? Well, if you were a doubter, you would probably ask questions like, well, what did he look like? What did it feel like to touch the scars? Were you guys drinking too much that night? Too much wine flowing? You'd be asking those questions, right? That's doubt. Unbelief says, unless I get the evidence the way I want it, personally, myself, I am not going to believe. Now what's interesting is we actually live in a world that says things like science, those things are real, and things like belief, faith. That's everybody's personal truth, personal opinion. There's nothing objective about that whatsoever. Now, let me do a little test with you to see if we can make some sense out of this. OK, so I have this container here, and it's filled with Starburst. Okay, I'm curious, how many Starburst are in this container? Any guesses? Yell it out. Okay, we got thousands down to hundreds. Something in between? Five hundred? Three forty-nine? Okay. Drum roll. Are you ready? Six hundred and seventy-eight. I spilled them this morning. So I know. Okay. 678. The right answer is 678. Now, suppose that I opened this up and started passing it out to you, and some of you got a watermelon one, some of you got a lemon one, some of you got a cherry one, and and everybody put it in their mouth, started tasting it, and then I asked the question, which flavor is right? That's a strange question, right? Which flavor is right? Well, because that's a matter of personal opinion, right? That's your personal truth. So we make a difference between personal truth and objective fact. Now, here's what you need to understand. Christianity is not based on feelings or personal truth. It's not your opinion versus your opinion, what you like, what you like. It's actually based on the objective fact that Jesus Christ lived, walked this earth, died on a cross, was dead, buried, and then on Easter morning, he physically rose from the grave. That event either happened or it didn't happen. And if it happened, then everything Jesus is telling us is true, that he came from God, that he is the way to salvation, that he has that Zoe spiritual life to be able to give you. That's not a question of, well, that's just your opinion. Either he rose or he didn't. Everybody on this planet who's willing to be objective would ask and answer the question, how do I explain the empty tomb? How do I explain the evidence? That's what Christianity is based on, and that's why 2.4 billion, as Jim said last week, with a B, billion people on the planet, believe in Christianity because of the objective fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of you would say, well, okay, I think I could believe that if He, Jesus kind of showed up and and... Let me see it. And watch what Jesus does here. He's so kind. Verse 26, a week later, so Thomas had a week of pain while the other ones were happy. His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas' response, my Lord and my God." Some of you are thinking, that's what I want. I want Jesus to show up. If he came to me personally and did what he did for Thomas, then I would believe. Jesus gives both a warning and a blessing after that. In verse 29, Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I have given ample evidence through the physical resurrection and the testimony of the people that were there Now, those who choose to say, that's not enough for me, Jesus has to leave heaven and show up in my bedroom, or I will not believe, are making a conscious choice. You are choosing unbelief. You're choosing that. Blessed are those who can look at the evidence given, and from there, choose to believe, those are the people that will experience Zoe life and the blessing. And so how do we know that God has come into the world, that there's hope? The resurrection of Jesus Christ actually removes this obstacle of doubt so that you can believe. Now, the second person who's a close friend of John who has an obstacle in his life is none other than Peter himself. And Peter has a big obstacle in his life, and the obstacle that Peter has that must be removed by the resurrection is the obstacle of guilt. You say, well, why does Peter have guilt? Well, you see, right before Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, they were talking together with the disciples, and Jesus said to them, I'm going to die and you can't come with me. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to die. You can't come with me. And Peter said, whoa, if all the rest of these disciples abandon you, I would never abandon you. I would die with you. And in response to that, Jesus says, whoa, whoa, Peter, be careful because before the rooster crows at dawn, you will deny me three times. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is taken to trial, he's beaten, he's mocked, they're having this trial, and he's in in the palace of Caiaphas and out in the courtyard with the ability to look into where Jesus is being tried. Peter finds himself standing by the charcoal fire, warming his hands through the night as the trial's going on, and one, then two, then three people approach him and say, hey, you were with him. You're one of his disciples. And Peter says, I am not. I don't know him. He even begins to swear on oaths that he has no relationship with Jesus. And when he swears the final oath, the rooster crows at dawn. And Luke's gospel says Jesus in the judgment hall turns and makes eye contact with Peter, who's standing by the fire. And Peter realizes. I have denied my Lord, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. So Peter's a broken person. At the time he could have stood with Jesus, he actually abandons Jesus altogether. The one who claimed that he loved Jesus more than all the other disciples and would never desert him, he deserted Jesus. Now Jesus has appeared twice, and Peter's been in the room both times. But Peter decides he's going back to his home village on the Sea of Galilee. There he and six other disciples are together, and Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Now, for most of us today, if you said, hey, I'm going fishing, that sounds like a fun vacation from work. But Peter was a professional fisherman. What is Peter doing? Peter is going back to his old life. Peter feels like, since I have denied my Lord, there is no place for me in this new life, this new kingdom. I'm out. His guilt is overwhelming. It's a funny thing about guilt. All of us have it, whether we admit it or not. In fact, as you breathe air into your nostrils right now, as sure as you're breathing, there's something in your past that you think about from time to time, and you are so guilty. Someone you let down, a promise didn't that you didn't keep, someone that you cheated on. Somewhere along the way, you did, said, or didn't do something and it still from time to time comes back up in your mind. That's where Peter is. He can't experience the life of God because he's stuck. He's stuck. He can't receive Zoe, the resurrection life because all he can think about is I'm a failure and I can never erase what has happened, what I have done. To make matters worse, Peter fishes all night and he catches nothing. Now keep in mind, fishing for Peter was not, you know, a Bud Light and a bobber sitting in a boat, shoot, chew, chewing the fat with my friends. Like, that's not what it is. It's cast net fishing. So all the time you're throwing the heavy nets out, pulling them back in all night long, throwing them out, pulling them back in. And Peter is a professional. He's trying to fix his bios life. He needs money, food. What am I going to do to take care of me now that my Lord is distant through my guilt? So what does Jesus do? Jesus, just like he did with his friend Thomas, Jesus shows up. In John chapter 21, starting in verse 4, we read these powerful words. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So in the midst of the morning, over the Sea of Galilee, they're out in the boat, and Jesus is on the shore, and Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? I love that. Jesus has an awesome sense of humor. He could have said, do you have any fish? But he knew they didn't. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. He said to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon heard him say this, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water the other disciples followed by boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were far from sh- not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Now, in this dramatic moment, two things are really important to catch. First of all, when Jesus met Peter... He was having trouble catching fish. And Jesus said, throw your net on the other side. Reluctantly, he did. And he caught a massive number of fish. They pulled the boats up to the shore. Peter dropped to his knees in the sand in front of Jesus and said to him, depart from me for I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy of Zoe. Now... Jesus repeats the miracle. And I don't know exactly what's in Peter's head, but he's willing to jump in the water and swim 100 yards because he can't wait to get to the shore to see Jesus again. Something's happening here. And when he gets there, they're sitting around the charcoal fire and Jesus has cooked food for them. He gives them bread and fish like the feeding of the 5,000. It's like we're all back together again and everything's good, except it's not all good. Peter's sitting by a fire. The only two times a charcoal fire is mentioned in the Gospel of John is at the denial and here. There's something lingering in the guilt of Peter's mind that Jesus is going to have to deal with here. I want you to see what happens. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Whoa. Jesus goes right for the heart. You said you love me more than all of these disciples and you would never walk away or deny me. Peter Do you love me more than these? Jesus is bringing the moment of his failure and his cowardice to the surface and asking the question, do you really love me? Do you love me, Peter? Peter's response, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Got that out of the way. No, not yet. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, the third time, the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Now, in our culture today, many of you might be thinking that feels kind of cruel, right? To bring Peter to the point of pain about his failure by Peter denied him three times, Jesus is challenging him three times, like what is going on here? The reason why we have such a hard time with this is because in our culture, being hurt is what we avoid more than anything else, so we don't want to feel pain. We want to numb pain. We don't want to face guilt. We don't want to face our brokenness. We don't want to face our failure. In fact, in the face of guilt, we do all kinds of things. Oftentimes, we just stuff it. Well, it wasn't that bad. Or we blame other people. Well, they did what they did. That's why I did what I did. Sometimes, we just absolutely try to like bury it so deep inside But it just keeps coming back up. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking Peter through the full experience of what he did so that he could receive full forgiveness and get past it. Jesus, in his love, wants something better for Peter, so he's going to take Peter all the way down to the depth of his own pain and suffering to bring Peter back up to where he can do something with Peter. The third time, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now what's important for you to get is that in this passage, Jesus, every time he asked the question, which brought Peter back to the event, he replaced it at the end with, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is replacing his guilt with a new calling, a new identity no longer will Peter's identity be the one who simply denied Jesus. Peter is being called to the Zoe life through the resurrection, the new life, the new identity, by receiving a new mission from Jesus. Now, in the Holy Land, um, in Israel, there, there are lots of places that I love, and there's a lot of art to see there, but there's one particular statue that I get caught on every time, and here's the statue. This. In the background is the Sea of Galilee. This is the very place where all of this took place, where Peter was fishing, where Peter was restored by Jesus. And I want you to notice the statue is made in such a way that Jesus is standing over Peter. He's looking out to the Gentile regions, and he's saying to Peter, feed my sheep. Peter is kneeling, but I want you to see what's in the picture. Notice the shepherd's staff. Notice the shepherd's staff. What's Jesus doing? Jesus, the good shepherd, is handing the staff to Peter. Peter, I want you to take up the staff and live my life. I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to take this resurrection life, this Zoe life, and share it with other people, love other people, give this goodness to other people. And Peter did that. Peter got up, and he took the staff, and as he took the staff, Peter became the one who cared for and brought people to faith and loved them, and then he passed it on to the next generation, and the generation after that, and the people that came after that, Even today, the staff of Jesus, will you love other people? Will you take care of them? Will you carry my mission? Will you go and shepherd people in my name? All the guilt of your past has been removed in such a way that you now have the opportunity to pick up the staff of Jesus and to make a difference in this world. That's what the resurrection does. Now, as we think about this, I'm sure that there are some people that are with us today, and you'd say, Yeah, Tim, one of those two obstacles is me unbelief, or maybe guilt. And I've never really given my life to Jesus, I've never embraced this new resurrection life because those obstacles are holding me back. Today, I want to challenge you let them go the resurrection of Jesus overcomes unbelief. It overcomes the guilt of our lives. Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus wants to change your identity. Jesus wants to give you a new life and a new purpose. And all you have to do is ask him. All you have to do is believe on him and accept what he did on your behalf. And today, your life can change. And I don't want you to leave without an opportunity to do that. So what I'm going to do is just take a few moments, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if this prayer is yours, like this is what you want, you want a relationship with Jesus, then in your heart, just pray it along with me. Let's bow our heads together so that nobody's interrupting your moment. And let me pray. This is the prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to give me new life. Today, I ask you, Father, to forgive me of my sins. I ask you, Father, to come into my life I ask you, Father, to fully and completely remove my doubt and my guilt and fill me to the fullness of your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, if you prayed that prayer, I just want you to know that God has heard it. God has received it, that you now have been given new life in Jesus Christ. And we are so excited to rejoice with you that it was on this Easter Sunday that you received resurrection life. In addition to that, for those of you who are receiving new life today or have new life, what we want you to know is you don't have to get stuck in by us. So many Christians are stuck simply living for the physical world, but God's called you to be a difference maker. The resurrection life of Jesus can change you. And just like we saw with Community First Village, that a man with a vision of life went into a community, the homeless community, and began to elevate people by the gospel of Jesus. Christ out of where they are. The church of Jesus Christ has been doing this for years, and you can be part of that. Next week we're starting a sermon series called Difference Makers, and we're going to be talking about how you can actually make a difference in some of the greatest problems that are facing us today. The politicians don't have the answer, the pundits don't have the answer, but in Jesus Christ we have resurrection life to offer. And so we're going to invite you not only to come back next week to hear about these topics and these challenges and how we can make a difference, but also for you to join a small group where you can be part of a group of people that are discussing how to get involved and change the world. Jesus called us to new life. He called us to change the world, and on this day, Easter Sunday, we are reminded that we have life in his name. He is our God, and we have hope because of him. Let's stand together and worship Jesus.